Hello, and welcome to the Who's in Charge podcast, seeking out a Canadian leadership style by diving into difficult moments. I'm your host, Conway Huey. Remember to visit the podcast website at conwayhuey.ca for other episodes. This is a bonus episode in that it's a, a bit of a mix-up of clips from my time with Orsi Sabo. And unlike other episodes, involves a lot of me talking, so it's going to be pretty short. Uh, Orsi is an actor, a writer, a director, an acting coach, and an ultra runner uh, who also teaches speech arts at the Shadbolt Center for Performing Arts. Uh, we met when I signed up for speech arts to try to make myself more engaging when I have opportunities to speak at work. She helped a lot with that. And while I, you know, I wasn't afraid of public speaking before, she helped me with a lot of stage presence, projection, and also a lot of the story writing that goes with the speech. Orsi also really made this podcast happen. Having a true creative person uh, help guide me through this creative process, especially, you know, I'm like an old engineer type person. Uh, just having that weekly person to bounce stuff off of was so valuable. And I feel super fortunate that we had that time to get this little tiny idea off the ground and into a real produced podcast, which I also learned so much along the way about audio production, writing, editing, promoting, and it was, it was a lot of fun, and I learned a lot. One thing that Orsi had done before was host a local version of Meet the Filmmakers. So we both thought at the same time that it might be fun if she blasted me with a bunch of questions, sort of turning the tables around, so you get a chance to learn a little more about me. And here's the result. I actually had questions for you. I mean, because can... this, this whole time you were saying, what do I know about leadership or subordinates or things like that? But you directed a movie. I have directed a movie. <laughs> yes. Have you seen my movie? Uh, no, no. I'm, I'm still trying to find it. Well, I can I send think you I a link. Like go, okay. There's a link. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's like you being dropped into a whole whack load of people who know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. But you have to tell them what to do. I mean, I've been in theater and film forever, and I had directed a lot of plays, and I had been a teacher for a long time. So I guess I kind of knew what the job was, just not exactly like I had confidence in my ability to do the thing because I had like experience that was similar and I am a proud film school dropout <laughs> <laughs> and um I don't know everybody trusted that I could do it and even when I was like hey you should get so-and-so to direct it they were like no we want you so I think I took their trust and faith and um made it work and, and did it work? Were there any struggles? Yeah, there were so many insecurities. Not ever talking with the actors, because that's my wheelhouse. Like, that's okay. what I can do all day long. But um, the cinematographer and I definitely had some interesting conversations. And 
he was using language that I didn't necessarily understand and mm-hmm. we had to like find common language. And in the end, it was okay that I didn't know what every lens does. And, you know, yeah. like as long as I can communicate my vision, it's for each department to figure out how to do that. I don't have to know everything about wardrobe or, you know, all the little things. I just have to communicate a big picture. Yeah, I think that's like, I've had a few conversations like that where leadership is not micromanaging everybody's every single daily task, but setting a vision is the most important thing and letting them, giving your people some free reign to use their own creativity. A hundred percent. I I mean, filmmaking is a team sport. It's not, it's, you know, the more freedom you give people, uh, the more they will rise up to the challenge. I think that's true in many areas. Yeah, yeah. So were there any other struggles or any times that things really went badly during that film? Yeah, on the first day, we had a couple moments. We had location scouted a scene where we're going to shoot at night. And there was like, we had a puppy. And in the first take, we quickly realized we couldn't use the puppy. <laughs> so I cut the puppy. <laughs> um, I There were sound issues. Like when we had location scouted, um, there was no sound at that time. But... At this particular time, there was something like, I don't know, something on in one of the buildings. And even though we had permits to shoot, we ended up moving it a block down to try to fix (laughs) our sound issues. And in the end, it was my first day directing and I didn't make my day. Like your day is 12 hours. That's when you have to let your crew go. Mm -hmm. And I didn't entirely make my day the first day make your day meaning like you didn't get all of the scenes that you wanted yeah okay and we were going to shoot this movie it's a short film called lead and follow we're going to shoot it in two days Mm -hmm. so we had um all the exterior stuff happening that first day and so i ended up letting basically everybody go except the two main actors and the cinematographer and um, <laughs> there was this cab scene where they were, um, the two main actors were, I guess flirting is the, is the best way to put it. And so I ended up driving the cab. The um, cinematographer was sitting right next to me and we had this really fancy camera. Like, <laughs> like, okay. like it was just like, it was intense. And then we had the two actors in the back and that was sort of it. And I was driving the car on like, commercial drive and uh listening to the actors like i couldn't really watch back there was no rear view mirror in the cab also because the camera was taking up a lot of space like it was but it's the most beautiful scene in the movie and it's um it's a one shot like there's no editing um it's a continuous uh minute plus um scene and it's my favorite and I really fought for that scene to be that way I didn't want to get coverage which was a gamble um anyway that first day the assistant director was really mad at me (laughs) what does coverage mean mean? coverage means like you don't want to shoot something just from one angle like if something goes bad you want to have multiple angles so you can cut from one thing to another so you would do something in a master which is really wide and then Mm -hmm. you would go to medium shots and then you would go to close-ups 
And there are several scenes in the movie where there's no coverage. Where I was you just like, had one. Yeah, okay. but that means the actors have to be flawless. Yeah. There is no room for anything because you cannot cut away. But because acting is my specialty and I know how to get performances out mm-hmm. of people, I was like, that's the one thing I can own. Yeah. I don't have to have yeah. them cut away. I can get them to have perfect takes but that takes a lot of trust and um so the producers weren't happy but they let me and anyway i didn't entirely make my day that day i was a little bit off and the assistant director's job is to keep you on schedule yeah and i definitely annoyed him the first day um but then i showed up the second day just like a boss like i took all of my insecurity and everything that I had the first day and realized like, I just need to like be way more decisive with everything. Okay. And so So the second day I more than made my day. And so the first day you didn't make it because why you were reshooting things over, you weren't happy with certain things. Like why did it drag on too long? I think I was just letting things take a little bit longer than you needed. Mm. And like, just just do one more just take for safety, okay. even yeah. though I knew. But I, yeah. I was, I was just playing it a bit more safe. And the second day, uh, we're shooting at the Diamond, which is this beautiful restaurant in uh, Gastown. And I knew it was a bigger day. Like we had to shoot more pages the second day mm-hmm. than the first day. And I knew that I had to move at a different speed. And I just, from the moment I walked in the second day, I just was like, yeah, um, yeah. I just had a different energy about me. I just knew. Do you think you learned from that first day and came back? A hundred percent. Yeah. I was like, I did not want to feel like that again. No way. <laughs> That's good. I mean, instant lesson right there, right? You had day, you learned from it, came back the second day, reset everything and, and, and really hit it. Yeah. yeah. And the... Uh, the assistant director was really funny. He was like, I don't want to be in your way. Um, his name was Richard. He was just like, if you're doing well, I'm going to be like in the corner. The closer I get to you, <laughs> the more like in trouble mm-hmm. you are kind of thing. And it's like, I didn't see him the second day. He was like, I never touched to talk to you, <laughs> which is not true. Like we would check in. But um, yeah, there was like no issues. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll send you a link. Yeah, that's a good story. And uh, I will put that link in the show notes. Sure. <laughs> People can watch it. <laughs> so, yeah, for the second part, um, you, you said you used to do Meet the Filmmakers. Yes. Right, which is where you are asking filmmakers endless questions about what they do. So feel free, ask me anything. Oh, I would love to ask you things. Um, my first question would be, what inspired you to do this podcast? I think it was just seeing the quality of what uh, private companies out there are picking up for leadership training and how much more could be done or how much more there is to do in leadership. Because these companies, they... Every, you know, everybody, so many people say, okay, I want to be a manager. I want to be a manager. So they, say, so they say, okay, here, take this five days of PowerPoint with this guy or girl that we found, and, uh, and then we'll make you a manager. But when I looked at that training package, it's just, it's so lacking compared to the experiences that 
especially um, those that have gone through the military process and actually had more practical experience with a very large group of people with big stakes uh, at hand, even if it's within just training, that there was so much that we can transfer from from them to the civilian world. This podcast is, is also an extension of a professional development program that uh, I've been working on with some um, of the junior leaders that I've been working with. And when I asked them how they get their leadership inspiration or content in you know 2023, a lot of them take it digitally. So rather than force them to sit in a room with me and other <laughs> senior leaders and make them listen at 100% attention for 30 to 60 minutes, I looked at how they were getting things and they were, they were okay, so maybe they use like Instagram or TikTok and get like little short flashes, bursts of it. Um, but they also use podcasts so that they can consume it on their own time uh, whenever they like. So I thought rather than, again, sit them and lecture at them, uh, why don't I give them this in a format that, that they are currently consuming? And if they choose to not listen to the whole thing, they can. And if they want to listen to it over and over again, they can too. So that's really where this idea got started. What's an experience you wish people would have? Like when you were just mentioning the military, like what's mm -hmm. an experience that you've had there that you wish uh, just like civilians would have? Stress exposure. That's like the number one thing that, that military training does that, that others don't is crank up the stress way up, kind of beyond where you would expect it to ever be in your normal job. But that's good. Because then when you get up to the most stressful parts of your normal job, like when people are sick and projects are late, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, this is not like it was when Conway did that crazy training thing where the stress was cranked up to 11. Can you describe a day like that? Because to me, I like, I know it sounds funny because I'm like on film sets, but I like my, my days are stressful. Like, can you describe yeah. like what like a stressful day in the military looks like? Um, well, without actual bullets flying, <laughs> yes, they, they, that, cause that's, that's what they try to train towards is to prepare you for that. Right. Nothing can actually prepare you for that, but you can do so much in, in peacetime to crank the stress up to that level. And a lot of it is done just with time constraint and you layer that on top of some sleep deprivation, which simulates a lot of fatigue. And you end up in this situation where even like myself, if you go back to um, the talk I had with my friends in Ottawa, where normally I can present and talk to a bunch of engineers, no problem. But when we were in Kingston and we were on like 16 hour days and maybe I was sleeping and the room I was in was like 30 degrees Celsius at night, then you come back the next day and you're just a wreck. And uh, you go back and thinking like, oh, Nothing was ever that bad. Got it. So how do you think like corporate companies could um, have this stress exposure? Like what could they do to facilitate that in their training? 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot. Like I said, time constraints because in in corporate culture, there's still deadlines and goals that people want to meet, and and a lot of stress is around meeting deadlines or being late or delivering things late or over budget, right? So if you do that within a training environment. You crank up the time pressure or crank up the pressure to meet certain targets. You can kind of stimulate that higher stress environment. When did you know that you were a good leader? Um, I didn't for a long time. <laughs> and then little bits here and there. I think the biggest one a few times was um, when I went on that operation for the flooding. And I was only out there for two weeks. I was supposed to be out there for four, but I said, I, I got to get back to regular life after two weeks. Most of it was done. And so I left. And the day after, they phoned me and they said, can you come back? <laughs> because we need you. And that's when I said, okay, maybe I, I didn't do such a bad job there. Could you give us a little bit of backstory on the flooding for some of our listeners who might not know what happened in BC last year? Yeah, yeah. So multiple atmospheric rivers dumped um, lots of water in Abbotsford where there used to be a lake and so the dikes overflowed and all the rivers ended up um, covering most of the farmland in eastern Abbotsford leading out into Chilliwack. Um, so the army was called in to help rebuild a lot of the dikes and help individual properties with flood relief. There was a group that came down with Ed from Edmonton and then locally within southwest BC and, uh, and the island we formed another group of people about 120 of us went out there, and uh, I was the number two person from the top. What were you able to do specifically, you think, that really helped that situation? I think just being there in the community. We were out in Chilliwack, and, and there was another group based out of Aldergrove. But just being in Chilliwack and responding to the residents and just them seeing us and knowing that we were there, able to help them when they're needed. Uh, and just seeing the looks on their faces and how happy they were to have us around and mm. and um, and helping them with sandbagging their properties, which is what we did. How do you deal with people who are working underneath you who might be like scared by a situation or overwhelmed? How do you show up for them? It's a tough question. Yeah, in... It depends, I think, on the situation, because if it's a fast-paced scenario, you don't have time to stop and deal with that. So you kind of have to put that person aside uh, and move on, because there just isn't time to stop. But if you do have the time and it's not critical, um, you do need to stop because this person might be critical to the plan or the team and and understand what they're going through and listen to them and see if there's something that can be done to to help them before you continue. You and I have had a number of conversations because whenever I talk to you, I'm so inspired by a growth mindset. And I'm curious where you think that comes from. Have you always been like that? Growth mindset. I just put you on the spot. <laughs> I know. Growth mindset. Where did it come from? That's tough. That's that's gotta I gotta go back a long ways for that and where it came from. But I mean I think 
the reason I'm doing this podcast is because through all those many years, I had a good series of leaders above me to, to look at as, an, as examples and who would give me good feedback on how I was doing and would trust me with things. And so that motivated me to do my best as well. Specifically, what inspires me about you is that whenever you get a specific piece of new information, like you have this like little aha moment, and then you take action on it. And I find that I teach a lot of people and almost everybody has aha moments, but the action after that is missing. So what motivates you Mm. to take action right away? Well, first, thank you for that compliment. And... um, why do I take action as soon as I get new information? Because I think that's another quintessential thing of, of higher level, kind of operational level military training is we go through like a 500 plus hour course on operational planning. And one of the questions that gets asked over and over and over again when you do that is, has the situation changed? And if the situation's changed, what's the new information and what do you do with it? So when you give me feedback, it's like, okay, the situation's changed. I've got new information. It must go into my plan, and I must take action on it. So you're just wired that way? It's just, it's, you know, 500 hours, which is like a little mini master's degree. You get wired a certain way, and uh, it's a good thing. Okay, so I could rewire my brain in 500 hours? I think anybody could rewire their brain for anything in 500 hours. I was going to say, that's just like... A little over an hour a day for a year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, imagine if you if you did something for like, like you run, how many hours do you think you run in a year? I run about eight to 10 hours a week. Yeah. So 500 <laughs> hours a year. I'm really good at running. <laughs> so we, we ended last time, what was something about vulnerability? Yeah, Um, I was asking because I feel like in this journey that we've taken together, um, you've really discovered the strength and vulnerability. And so it was something like, you know, when when did I when do I feel vulnerable? And 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 that made me think and go back and think about. Well, what? When was I vulnerable before? Like, I'm open to it now that I've. You know, I come up with stories and I share it, and and I'm and I'm, I'm happy and I enjoy that. Before, uh, when I was and still am, um, developing as a leader and manager and stuff. When, when people quit or leave, and I'm the boss, that's like super vulnerable for me personally. I, I don't know that like a lot of people maybe don't feel like that, um, but for me, I, me personally, I take that kind of like really personally like what did I what could I have done differently what did I do wrong or what what went wrong you know so you interpret someone's leaving as a fault of yours the first few times maybe yeah and then later on it I think what really changed my mindset uh, at some point not that long ago maybe just like a couple years ago was this idea that that 
I'm not there to hold them forever. I'm there to help prepare them for the next thing. And if the next thing isn't with our team, then that's fine. At least we've prepared them for where they want to go. And that's the most important part. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think that ultimately, like as a teacher, I always want people to move on. I want them to get to a point where they can embody whatever lesson they've learned and uh, practice it. Yeah. When talking about vulnerability, I think it's so easy to talk about it in past tense. Like we can go back to old stories. Um, but what's making you feel vulnerable currently? Currently, at this very moment, uh, many things. I mean, I've never had such a public profile. You know, I launched this podcast a week ago. The first episode releases next week. When you type my name into Google instead of a bunch of random things, it's like my website and and profiles shoot up to the top and I'm like wow I'm I'm out there <laughs> it's like I put something on Facebook marketplace and I sold it and the person's like oh yeah I looked you up you do this 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 and this and I'm like oh wow that's right that's all out there <laughs> you'd never googled yourself before <laughs> I did but but not that much stuff used to come up how would you describe that so vulnerability is like a word that could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people mm -hmm. um Pretty brown, like has hers. Uh, how does that manifest or feel inside of you? It's kind of scary yeah. for me. I mean, as somebody who's like who's pretty private most of the time, and who almost kind of shuns the attention and limelight. Now I'm out there, and everybody. Well, not everybody, but. It's easy to find me and find out about me, whereas before I took, I didn't even try or took steps even to, to stay in the background. So is it the lack of privacy or is it more about how people will receive the show? Yeah, maybe it's about what might happen and and when not you know when I, I was i was a shy kid and i think part of being a shy kid is you worry that you're going to be embarrassed and something's going to happen that will embarrass you if you say something and now i've said lots of things and it's out there and i'm waiting to see what's going to happen right um as a former shy kid myself <laughs> i can totally relate but now as you know, and as an adult with like so much experience, would somebody else's opinion of you or them not liking an episode hurt your feelings? Uh, no, not at all. I think maybe that's what social media prepares us for, <laughs> being roasted by anonymous people. So I think I'm ready, I think, but I'm still worried. Yeah, I mean, I think it's exciting. I think you can interpret um, nervous energy as excitement. Yeah. You can interpret it in a more fearful way. But I think butterflies are beautiful. And as we get to a certain age, we're probably close to the same age. Um, I think it's rare. So there's something so beautiful about experiencing something new. Um, 
flipping that, what is your biggest hope for this podcast? Uh, it would be amazing if it grew and people actually found it useful in a way that's different from from what else they were using before, like other podcasts or other resources. Um, and if if you know lots of people actually benefited, I like to count it in terms of how many rooms full of people actually got something out of it. So if it's like a like a regular classroom is like 30 people. So if I spoke to like a classroom, that's pretty good in my books. And if you somehow make that 10 times and it's 300 people, that's like a whole auditorium, like a, a college auditorium, right? That's, that'd be amazing. So I'm not, I'm not <laughs> shooting for like a million subscribers, but like three to 500 would be, wow. Yeah, three to 500 people learning about leadership and how mm -hmm. to be better leaders. Yeah, and hearing these stories, yeah. That's beautiful. What's something that you wished people would know about you? They're not gonna like even see you because it's just your voice. So they're only gonna have like little bits of information about you that they'll interpret from your voice. What's something that you wish people would know about you? Nobody's ever asked me that. And I don't know how to answer because uh, like I said, I've, I've been a pretty private person up to now. I don't have things that, that I walk into a crowd and, and want people to know um, about me. You don't not, have like some go-to stories? I'm not, I don't, I don't. I don't, I, I think that's like the introverted engineer part who's like kind of way down the scale of introversion. <laughs> that's funny. I feel like sometimes I'm like, I don't know what that movie is saying, you know, like that one time at band camp. Yeah. I feel like I'm like that sometimes with like running stories or with like when I went and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, like there's like certain stories that I just like like to tell and yeah. retell. Are there any stories that are just like really dear to your heart that you enjoy telling? You know, up until now, I wasn't a big storyteller up until three, four months ago. And I think you saw how, how much effort it takes for me to go back and dig these things up and curate them a bit and then bring them out and then tweak it a bit. Uh, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time. But I'm sure there are a lot of stories. <laughs> I mean, I've heard a few. Um, when you decided to make this podcast about leadership and finding people's stories. Was there a story that popped into your head about your leadership journey? Well, uh, one of the earliest ones, probably one of the very first times I was ever in charge of any people because, you know, I never did any sports or extracurricular. Well, it's not like I was the team captain of the math contest club or anything like that. So until I, I joined the the army and went on officer training i wasn't really ever formally put in charge of anything so when i got to officer training and we were it was winter time and we were there was there's you know 30 of us on the course most almost all of them except myself were regular force and we were heading out back into the the forest or <laughs> the gigantic patch of snow and it was minus 40, maybe minus 20 
um, Celsius. And we had to load all the trucks up with everything that we needed to bring with us. So toboggans, uh, rucksacks, uh, camp fuel, stoves, lanterns, Arctic tents, Arctic tent liners, uh, everything that you need to survive out in <laughs> the Canadian winter. And uh, and I was in charge that day. I was what they call the, the core senior. So I was the most senior candidate that day. Um, and the instructor said, okay, uh, Huey, um, make sure everything gets loaded in the trucks because uh, we're going to head out into the field uh, first thing in the morning or maybe it was later that day. And I said, okay. So I gathered everybody together and I said, all right, uh, we're going back out into the field. We got to get all these trucks loaded. And that's it. I didn't know what else to say, but because everybody knew what they were doing, the activity just started happening and everybody grabbed what they knew they needed and threw it on the trucks. And, um, and I'm looking around and everything's going well, people are moving things that they should be. And, uh, so I, I don't know what to do. I, and I decide that I should just, um, jump in and help. So I, I start loading some stuff into the trucks myself because I don't just want to be standing there watching. Um, and I thought the good thing to do would be to help them out. So I start helping. And then one of the instructors pulls me aside and he says, what are you doing? And, and I said, well, I'm, I'm helping out. Everybody seems to know what they're doing. So I'm just going to help. Them. I don't want to just stand there and watch. And he says, you should be motivating them. And I'm thinking, motivate them? Well, how do I, what do I do that? And he says, motivate them, keep them moving. Like, you got to yell at them like this, like, you, move this here and there. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> In my mind, I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't know that I need to do that. But uh, so I did, so, so I, that's what I did. I started um yelling at everybody and, and telling them where to put things, even though they already knew where to put them and what had to be moved. Now, that in itself wasn't a big leadership lesson, nor was it a real struggle. But I think that that moment of being pulled out of that situation by the instructor um, and, and saying, hey, you, there's something that you should be doing Besides helping, there is something for you to do. Um, that made me think about the, the next level up, the bigger picture. Like, as the leader, I probably should have been cataloging what we brought and made sure that we had enough of each thing and that we knew which truck that they were in and that we didn't leave anything behind. So we were really lucky because everybody knew to just grab everything and throw it. And we had enough of everything, but it could have easily gone very sideways and probably wrong um, if something was left behind, like we ran out of fuel while we're out there or something, or um, a toboggan was left behind or, or somebody's kit or their sleeping bag was left behind. So, it could have gone very wrong. I was really lucky that even after the instructor pulled me aside that, and I didn't do any of that, um, that we had what we needed when we we're out there. So looking back, I think I was super lucky, but at the same time, it was that 
aha moment for me as a brand new leader to say, hey, maybe there's something else I should be doing. I've got the people to do this task, told them generally what needs to happen. Um, maybe there should be something besides just standing there. You know, maybe I should be checking, <laughs> making sure that everything is, they have everything, that they have enough of everything. Or what I've learned now is I should probably be working on whatever the next thing is, right? Looking even further ahead. And all of that comes back to that, that moment in New Brunswick, in the winter, in the minus 20, uh, loading these trucks um, from the base with all of our stuff to go out. Um, what do you think are some mis like misconceptions of like the army? I think in Canada, there's the army is very small, and unlike a lot of other places, very few people have military experience. So very few people know somebody directly who is in the military or has military experience. So there's very little awareness in Canada about what the military does and what military people are like as compared to a lot of other countries like the US for example where um, not only because of the way their terms of service works but because of the size of the military and the size of their country you know everybody either has or knows somebody or has a relative or has a friend or a co-worker who, who has service but in Canada you you don't get that outside of being very close to Ottawa or a base, um, and especially not here, like out on the West Coast, which is very far from any military base. So a lot of people don't don't personally know someone in the military or who has been. And so there's a lot of misconceptions about what the Canadian military can do and what it's like and and that, the, that it exists. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel underappreciated? Um, I think I do, and, and not personally, but as a as kind of an institution. And that's another reason for doing this is to just build a little more awareness of some of the skills that that people like me learn because of the military. Like, there's no way I could have got to where I am today without that experience, starting from the very low level as a private up until uh, more managerial leadership roles. And all that happened because of that types of training and that type of environment and also the uh, the mentors and the and the superiors that I had another thing the podcast could achieve is is showing people what military types are like and it's not a hundred percent military guest list but a lot of them are you know people that I've known or and now I'm getting volunteers <laughs> as well do you know who I think of when I think military and it's like a US reference and I don't know if you know yeah. this person but I think of David Goggins who okay. is um he's like an ultra runner now but he was like a navy seal mm -hmm. and he's just so loud and brass yeah. and hard yes. and I love him I read his book yeah. and like whatever but he's also like really really intense and so when I think of military I think like David Goggins yeah but that that's also so American and totally I mean it, like I'm, you pointed out I don't actually know anybody in the Canadian military yeah other than yourself exactly 
and this is, I think, what I'm out to change is to show some people what some Canadian military people are like through regular conversation, not what they see in the press or media. One of my favorite things you've shared with me was when you were talking about the floods that were happening during mm -hmm. the atmospheric rivers last year and the work you did there, and also your concern for global warming and how that's impacting our country and, well, the world, and how you're here to serve and to help. And that was like a really big deal. Like those floods were no joke. And yeah. The fires that happen here are no joke and like it's changing do you want to elaborate a little bit about the things you shared with me well there's also fires happening at this moment it's may 2023 fires in alberta are an emergency right now i just saw some messages calling for people to to go there they've already stood up some people in alberta they're seeing they're getting some people in bc ready just in case um And I'm, if I could, I'd be happy to help them as well. But when I look back on that time, it, it, was, it was a real eye-opener to be on the ground and, and speaking to people who are directly affected, who have like a stream in their backyard that is rising and they're just watching the water level come up and up higher than they've ever seen it. And you talk to these people. Or uh, we went to some First Nations uh, offices and they had all this runoff from the mountain because there was a fire further up the mountain and there were there was no trees left to hold back the water and so they just had this flood coming down the mountain that they had also never seen before and so you you see and talk to these people that are affected directly by two extreme weather events in a row a bad fire season and then sudden floods um, and and i think that One part of it is, yeah, helping helping the people that are affected and the victims, but there's got to be more that we as a society or as an institution can do to prevent it from happening again, right? Because we can't have, we can't be doing this every year or even two or three or five years. This is, it's, it's wild. Yeah, it's definitely going to get out of control if we don't do that, something. Um, But that is a wrap on today. Good. That's fine. Well, this uh, wraps up the premiere or first series or season. I haven't decided what to call it yet of, of the Who's in Charge podcast. So if you enjoyed it and you learned a thing or two or even more, please help spread the word by sharing this podcast with your own network. And please send me any feedback by LinkedIn or, or the Facebook page. Thanks for listening. This has been the Who's in Charge podcast with me, Conway Huey. Be sure to visit the website, conwayhuey.ca, to find show notes and more about me. Connect with me via the website or LinkedIn. And thanks again for listening. Remember to rate this on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite podcast service.